Hear the reading of God's law from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord, your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you for your moral law that is revealed to us in summary in the Ten Commandments, that you have not left us without guidance and how we ought to live and glorify you and obey you and love our neighbors well. You have spoken to us and you have spoken clearly. And so we ask that you would give us a love for your law. Give us a love for your commandments and your rules and your righteous ways, that we would be people that live for you, that love you and obey you and bring you glory in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Before I say much of anything tonight, I do want to say that a lot of what I'm going to be talking about tonight is, has been borrowed, um, so I don't want any copyright infringement or plagiarism or anything being, those charges being leveled against me. This last fall, I took a course at RTS, the seminary I'm going through, on worship, theology of worship, taught by Ligon Duncan, who has been a, was a pastor for a long time and has been the chancellor of our seminary, and he wrote a great book. I highly recommend this. It's very easy to read. It's called, Does God Care How We Worship? So I'll be quoting a few times from things he said in my class, but almost everything that he said in the class is also packed away in here. And it's very easy to read. So I highly recommend either borrow this from me or pick it up as a resource for yourself. Um, so I'll be quoting Ligon, I love the name, quite a bit tonight. But I love that question. Just such a great provocative question at the beginning of the book. Does God care how we worship? And we're going to be answering that question tonight. But something that we say often at Living Stone is that we are worshiping creatures as humans. 
We cannot help ourselves but to worship. So it's never a question of do we worship? It's always a question of what do we worship or whom do we worship? We all have a tendency to worship. And often the problem is that we have the tendency to worship the wrong things or the wrong people. We see that the problem that we have is not just a problem of not believing that a God exists, but that we all make for ourselves little gods that we desire to worship. Ligon Duncan, again, I'll be quoting a lot. He said, the basic problem of humanity is not atheism. It is idolatry. I love that. The basic problem of humanity is not atheism. It is idolatry. If we just took everybody in the world and made them theists, we would have not yet made everybody Christians. You can believe in God or a God out there. In fact, you're not going to run into any true modernist atheists in all of scripture, whether or not they're God's people or the pagan nations around them. Everybody believed in the existence of God or gods. The problem wasn't atheism. The problem was that humanity desired to worship things and people that were not the true God. Again, an issue of idolatry. And so it's not any surprise for us, I think, that when we look at the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments deal with the issue of idolatry. The first commandment deals with the whom of worship. Whom are we worshiping? And we're directed to not give our worship or our allegiance or ultimate value to anything other than the one true God. We are to have no other gods besides the one God. But the second commandment deals not only with the whom of worship, it also deals with the how of worship. God not only cares that we worship him, he also cares how we worship him. And again, Duncan, he says, there are two ways to commit idolatry. Worship something other than the true God or to worship the true God in the wrong way. Idolatry, again, can be worshiping something other than the true God or worshiping the one true God in the wrong way. So if you want a big idea, I have on the back of our worship guides today, it looks like most of you have found that, I have some notes printed for you because we're going to be dealing with a couple kind of technical things, and I thought it'd be good to have it kind of sitting in front of you. But the big idea for us is that true worship must be directed to God alone in the way that God has directed alone. It's pretty simple, right? Our worship must be directed to God alone in the way that God has directed alone. And this just is not the way that I think we tend to think about worship in kind of the American Christian world. Often we think that God only cares that we worship him and that we have a sincere heart, which are certainly true. But true worship is not just reduced to worshiping the true God and having a sincere heart. God cares about more than mere sincerity. And I want to think even just about how we obey God in any area of our lives. If I ask you the question, does God care that you do the right things or that you have the right motives? How would you answer that question? Yes, God cares about our motives and he cares about our actions. You can do the right thing with the wrong motives and it's wrong. Or you can do the wrong thing with the right motives 
and it's still wrong. Obedience to God needs to be bringing together our heart and our actions. Both need to be correct for obedience to be true. And the same goes for worship. God cares that our hearts are sincere, but also that we are worshiping God in the correct way. So Josh has already introduced in the Ten Commandments the idea of broad and narrow applications of the commandments. Do you guys remember what those are? Um, Any commandment, any of the Ten Commandments can be viewed in in a very narrow way. What is the very specific meaning of that commandment? But also in a broad way. What are the applications of this commandment to other areas of life? And just for an example, the first commandment, which we've already talked about, narrowly means, its narrow meaning is to not worship literal false gods. So literally, don't worship Baal, don't worship Allah, don't worship a pagan god, okay? But it also has broad applications for our lives. There are other things that aren't technically false gods that we can still value above God, whether that's food or money or pleasure, any number of things that we can take and we can turn into little gods, things that can rule us, things that we can give ultimate allegiance to. And even though that's not the narrow meaning of the first commandment, that is the broad meaning of the first commandment. It's idolatry in specific and idolatry in general that are dealt with. And so we're going to look tonight, just hopefully briefly, at the narrow application and the broad application of the second commandment. So we'll start with the narrow application of the second commandment. And uh, if you still have your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 20, It'll be helpful for you. And we're also going to flip to one other place in Exodus and then return back to, back to Exodus 20. So I'll give you a moment to turn there. But I want us to look here at Exodus 20 verse, verses 4 through the first half of verse 5. And then in a second, we'll look at the second half of verse 5 through verse 6, which deals with the second commandment. All right. So Exodus 20, 4 through the first half of 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So the narrow application of this commandment is to not worship images or to worship the true God through images. Do not worship images and do not worship the true God through images. And to be specific, this isn't a prohibition against art in general. This is not saying that you can't paint mountains and happy little trees and be Bob Ross. I know people that are great artists. This isn't saying that art in general is a bad thing, that you can't draw bunnies or trees or any of that. It's primarily an issue of worship. If you look at the the first half of verse 5, you'll see the word serve in there. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And the word serve there is the same word that's used of the work of the priests in the temple. It's an idea of worship. You shall not worship these images that you are making. That's the primary issue. So again, it's not, we should not make images that we bow down to or worship. And that makes sense to us, right? We shouldn't carve out a statue out of a piece of wood, our own little God, and bow down and worship this false image. But we should also not worship the true God through the use of images. So if you turn with me just a few pages forward to Exodus 32, Andrew introduced this well for me during the children's message, if you're here this morning. So thank you, Andrew. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. 
This is the golden calf incident that many of us are probably familiar with. And I just want to want to highlight a couple things here. We see that there's a problem of idolatry going on with the golden calf, but there are multiple layers of that idolatry. On one layer, as Andrew mentioned this morning, there was the worshiping of false gods. But I would also want to highlight to you that in the the issue with the golden calf is the worshiping of the one true God through the use of a golden calf. If you look with me at verses one and verses four, you're going to see in the ESV that they said to Aaron in verse one, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So there's the word gods there, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And then in verse four, they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, it's interesting that right after the Exodus, they'd be saying, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What's going on here is the word for gods, both in verse one and in verse four, is the word Elohim. Have you heard that word before? It's a plural Hebrew word that can either mean gods, small g, gods, or even in the plural, Elohim means the God, the true God. And then later, uh, it's mentioned uh, that this is a feast to the Lord. This is what Aaron says in verse five. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord. So the issue was not just that they were off worshiping other gods, but also that they were seeking to worship the God who had brought them out of Egypt, the all caps L-O-R-D Lord in the wrong way. They sought to worship him through idols, through a golden calf. So again, it's not just don't worship false gods. It's don't worship the true God through images. You might say, why is this such a big deal? Why does God not want us to make all these images to try to depict him and to worship him through. The, the big issue here, well, there's a couple, but one of the big issues is that it's an issue of how we think about God and I, how we conceive of who God is. Have you ever heard the phrase, the, medi- the medium is the message? It's, it was coined by Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. And the idea is that the medium through which something is communicated shapes the message itself, which is why we take, real, take care about our media ecology on Sunday mornings. We try to keep things simple because the way that we communicate the gospel actually informs the way that you think about the gospel. And the same thing goes for God. Our thoughts about God, the way we conceive about God needs to be governed by his word alone and not by our imaginations. We don't get to make God look like and be like however we want him to be. If you've ever heard someone say the phrase, that doesn't sound like the God I know, that's what they're doing. They're making in their mind a God that's how they want that God to be and then projecting that upon the true God. But that's not how we do it. Images not only reflect how we think about God, they also shape how we think about God. And again, God wants us to think about him in ways that are governed only by his word and not just by things that we make up or how we picture him to be in our head, but how he says that he is. And also notice the reasoning given if you flip back to Exodus 20. 
The reasoning that's given in Exodus 20, the second half of verse 5 through 6, is this. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. So you can ask, are you reformed folks being too particular about images of God and images in worship and not having statues up front or around our sanctuary or things like that? Are we being too particular and serious about this? I would say no. God takes these things very seriously. There's not, God does not give this sort of warning in each of the commands. But in the second command, he says, you shall not do this. I'm a jealous God. And I visit iniquity upon those who do not follow my commandments. And I bless those who follow my commandments. So we should care about this. God takes these things seriously, and so should we. So that's the narrow application. Do not worship images, and don't worship the true God through images. But then I want to broaden this out a little bit. And this is where things might get a little interesting. Maybe some things you haven't heard before. But hopefully this can be a good challenge to you in the way that you think about worship. The broad application of the second commandment is that God's word alone is the ultimate guide in how we worship God. That might not sound very controversial. God's word alone is the ultimate guide in how we worship God. We see in the second commandment that God cares how we worship. And we see in the Bible that we have a sufficient guide in scripture to tell us how we should worship God. God has given us directions about those foundational things. In the Reformed world, this is often called the regulative principle of worship. It's that God in his word regulates how we are supposed to worship him. And God does this both through negative and positive commands. God tells us negatively what not to do, but he also tells us positively what to do. And this is what sometimes sets the Reformed tradition off against other, even Protestant traditions, that would say that God's commandments in worship are primarily negative. As long as we're not doing the things that God has forbidden, then we're honoring God in worship. But we would want to say God also positively directs our worship so that we should take care to do positively the things and only the things that he tells us to worship. So don't just not do what he's forbidden, but also specifically do what he has commanded. And really, we should just see this as sola scriptura applied to the topic of worship. Sola Scriptura, that God's word is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And we should take that and we should apply that to all of our life. There's no part of our life that doesn't fall under God's authority as God is our true king. And that includes even especially what happens when we as God's people gather together and we seek to glorify him in worship. God cares how we worship him. And so he seeks to govern our worship by his word. And just a couple examples of this in scripture. It's not just in Exodus chapter 20. And notice here, I'm going to give a couple examples, both of negative things, people doing what God said not to do, but also the positive things of God, what God said to do, and then people being condemned for going beyond what God told them to do. Okay, so those positive and negative commandments. So first, Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to the Lord. And what was that strange fire? It was unauthorized worship. 
They sought to worship God in a way that God had not commanded. So they were condemned for that. 1 Samuel 15, Saul was judged for offering an unauthorized sacrifice. 2 Samuel 6, Uzzah, who was struck down for touching the ark. I think that's a great example of God caring about your motives and your actions. And you cannot do those things that God has forbidden. Jeremiah 19 and 32 both specifically say that God rejects the worship of the people specifically because they were doing that which I never commanded or spoke of. So it wasn't just that they did what God forbid, it's that they were doing things which God hadn't commanded, which things that God had not told them to do, which is similar again to the strange fire of Nadab and Abihu. And then is that just an Old Testament thing? I'd say no. One of the clearest examples is in Matthew 15, where Jesus is condemning the Pharisees. What does he condemn them for? Does he condemn them for taking away from God's word? No, he condemns them for adding to God's word, which is just as dangerous as taking away. And he specifically condemns them for adding religious rituals to what God had commanded. So in summary, when it comes to worship, we can't just do what we feel like doing. We can't just say, what do I want to do this morning? What, does, what do people want, you know? What, what do people want us to do? What will be entertaining? What will be this or that? No, we should ask first and foremost, what does God want us to do when we gather for worship? And we should be very careful to do those things. The Protestant Reformation, one way to look at it, it was about authority, sola scriptura. It was about how we're made right with God, justification by faith alone. But it was also a reformation of worship. That was one of the kind of foundational cornerstones of what was happening in the Reformation. Uh, Rome had added a bunch of ceremonies to worship. They had added this and that and the other thing, all of these extra pieces that God had never commanded. And so the reformers asked, what sorts of things should we be doing in worship? And how can we commit ourselves to these things? And what did they find? Well, you can look at Westminster Larger Catechism 108. I'm not going to be quoting as much from the Larger Catechism tonight, if that's okay. Or if you want to read on your own, uh, the Confession of Faith, chapter 21. But let me just summarize it for you. What should we be doing if we look at Scripture as our guide guide for worship? I think it's actually fairly simple. We should pray. We should sing. We should read the Bible. We should preach the Bible. And we should administer the sacraments. And then occasionally we should do other things that the Westminster lists like vows and odes and thanksgivings. And it gives scripture references for each of those things. So I think it's really helpful if you read through that, read through their scripture references. But I love how simple that is. What should we be doing when we gather together? We should pray. We should sing. We should read the Bible. We should preach the Bible. And we should administer the sacraments. Or as Ligon Duncan says, we should read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and see the Bible. And when he says, see the Bible, he's talking about the sacraments because they're sensible things. They're things that we can touch and taste and see and feel, right? So they're, it's not just, the, the gospel is not just something we hear, but it's something that we also observe in the sacraments. So we read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and see the Bible. And I think any church that commits themselves to those very simple things is doing a great job at trying to worship God. If we say, we're going to do those five things and we're going to do them very well. I think that that should be a great commitment and something that we uh, should commit to do as a church. Even if you look through our normal, ordinary uh, order of service, you can ask, where are we doing those things? Well, we're actually doing those things in everything. 
call to worship. We're reading through scripture, a song of adoration, a song of praise. We're praying. And what are we praying? We're praying scripture. And then we read the law. We confess our sins, which is really a prayer. And we're asking what types of prayers do we see in scripture? Well, we see prayers of adoration and prayers of illumination and prayers of, of praying on behalf, interceding for people, prayers of confession. So we want to do the types of prayers that scripture shows us to do. We, and then we have an assurance of pardon, which is another reading of scripture. And we have a song and a benediction, which is another read of, reading of scripture. We're doing over and over again, those five basic things, like piece by piece throughout our services. And it might be counterintuitive for us to think about this as being a freeing thing. When in say the regulative principle of worship, it sounds like something that's constraining like a tight jacket that's put on us, say, oh, but I, but I want to go do this. I want to go do that. Isn't, why is God being so restrictive on how I worship? I actually want to just end by showing us, I think that the regulative principle of worship is insanely freeing, incredibly freeing, way more freeing than any other philosophy of worship. And it's freeing in two ways. The regulative principle is freeing because it preserves the freedom of conscience and because it promotes proper cultural and contextual freedom in worship. So two pieces, preserves freedom of conscience and it promotes proper cultural and contextual freedom in worship. So let me just talk briefly about each of these. Freedom of conscience. Do you guys have ever heard that term? It was a big part of the Reformation at the Diet of Worms in 1521 when Luther was asked to recant part of his reasoning behind why he could not recant is because it was unsafe to go against conscience. He was bound by what the word said, and he was not willing to go against what the word said. It was a matter of conscience for Luther. And the idea of the freedom of conscience for us and for you who are sitting in the pews is that the church has no authority to force you to believe or to do anything without scriptural warrant. We can't force you to do something without scriptural warrant. We can't force you to believe something that scripture has not said. The authority of the church begins and ends with the authority of God's word. The issue of the Pharisees, uh, the issue of the Roman, uh, Roman Catholic church during the Reformation is that, again, they had added ceremonies, they had added doctrines, they had added religious rites and all these things to scripture. And they were requiring people and even requiring people for salvation to do these extra things that went beyond the word, to do these extra ceremonies, to do these extra religious rites. And I mentioned that Jesus critiqued the Pharisees and he quotes from Isaiah, this is in Matthew 15, and he says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So the belief that we can add to what God tells us to do does not promote freedom. It actually promotes bondage to the whims of people. Instead, doing what God tells us to do is the freeing thing, okay? So if someone says, you must do this, and it's beyond the word of God, they are not providing you freedom. They're binding you beyond what God's word tells you to do. So the regulative principle, which seeks to say, what does God's word tell us to do, and we're gonna do those things, does not bind us. It doesn't constrain us. It frees us. And then second, the regulative principle promotes proper cultural and contextual freedom in worship. Proper cultural and contextual freedom. 
And for this, I want to distinguish what you have on the back between three parts of worship. Elements, forms, and circumstances. Elements, forms, and circumstances. So the elements are what we do. Forms are how we do them. And circumstances are necessary incidental details. So for some examples I have on there, um, an element would be something like I mentioned the read the Bible, preach the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, see the Bible. Those are the things the Bible tells us to do. Those are the elements of worship. The forms are how we do those elements. So does the Bible tell, tell us how many scripture readings we have need to have? No. Does it tell us what books of the Bible we need to read from on any given Sunday? No. We should sing. Does it tell us what songs we need to sing on any given Sunday morning? I would say no. Does it tell us how long a sermon should be or whether the, a prayer is offered just by Josh or by us in unison? No. So there are different forms. And then there are circumstances, which are necessary incidental details. And this is things like what to wear, where to meet, when to meet. And then each of these is governed by scripture in a different way. And I think this is what's very important for us to understand. Elements, those basic pieces, must be prescribed by scripture. We need to have positive warrant in scripture for the big pieces of what do we do on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening when God's people gather in worship. With the forms, though, we don't look for the exact same sort of positive scriptural warrant. Instead, we look at how the forms need to support the elements. So if we are to preach and we're going to preach the Bible, the form of your, servant, your, your sermon on Sunday morning should not take away from God's word. And there are types of preaching where someone can say, I'm preaching, but they're not putting the focus on God's word. And I would say in that way, your form isn't supporting your element. The form should always promote and build up the thing that you are doing. It should be filled with biblical content. So although the Bible doesn't tell us which songs we need to sing, our songs need to be biblical, right? They need to be filled with biblical content and they need to be directed by biblical wisdom, okay? So there's elements, forms, and then there's circumstances, which just need to be decided by general biblical principles and common sense. So if I was gonna say, how do we decide what time our morning service should begin? It's okay if we don't look to the Bible and say, we need to find an example of a service beginning at 1115. We should use common sense. It's common sense that we don't begin a worship service at 4 a.m., right? Because that would not promote the forms and elements being done well because everybody would be asleep and no one would show up to church. So again, these are things, the circumstances are things that need to happen. Like we need to wear something. So we should just use common sense and biblical wisdom and make a decision. We need to meet somewhere. We need to sit on something. Is it a pew or chairs? Like, let's just use common sense and biblical wisdom, okay? So one common critique of the regulative principle is, well, the Bible doesn't tell me what to wear to church. I'm like, well, you're confusing circumstances, forms, and elements. The Bible, you know, doesn't tell us that Josh needs to wear a robe on Sunday morning. Well, he needs to wear something. So that's circumstance. He, it doesn't tell us what he needs to wear. And to say that, we're being inconsistent is again, misunderstanding circumstances, forms, and elements. And when we understand those things, this is where it becomes such a freeing thing for us. I think too often what we tend to do in churches is we tend to take the forms 
and the circumstances and make those the things that are essential to true worship. We say true worship is worship with an organ. True worship is worship with a big band and an electric guitar and lights and dimmed stuff and a pastor who's really casual and hip. True worship is a pastor wearing a suit and everybody being formal. True worship is this form or this circumstance. When in reality, true worship is worship that's governed by God's word and is done according to the wisdom of God's word. And so I do think that general wisdom of God's word can speak to those issues. I think we're flipping it when we make our preferences, our cultural preferences, our contextual preferences, when we make that the essential thing of worship. And I want us to just, this is the the last thing here. I just want us to think about uh, a hypothetical situation here. If we were going to, as Livingstone Church, all move to Uganda and plant a church there, how would we decide what to do in worship? If we made an American cultural form and circumstance of worship, the main thing, we might go to Uganda, build a building that looks like this. I'll show up wearing suits and decent looking shirts and khakis and uh, sweaters and things and stand up and sing Keith and Kristen Getty songs and all of these things, right? Would that be helpful? Probably not. If we showed up to Uganda and wanted to plant a church, what should we do? Well, we should preach the Bible. We should read the Bible. We should sing the Bible, pray the Bible and see the Bible. And the forms and circumstances can be, can be informed by the culture around us. It, and that's okay as long as it's done in a biblical way. If people in a different culture wear different clothes to church that are fitting in that culture, great. If they meet in a different type of building, awesome. If they use different instruments, like they don't need to have a piano and a guitar, and then they sing songs that are filled with great scriptural content, but they're songs that weren't written in England, like we shouldn't have a problem with that. And so the regulative principle allows Christian worship to be recognizable as Christian worship in whatever culture it inhabits. That Christians can go into any culture and be faithful to God by doing the things that God has told us to do without being bound by unnecessary things. So again, it sounds like the regulative principle that God is just the stuffy God who wants to control us and constrict us. When in reality, when being faithful to the simple things that God has called us to do, uh, we have great freedom, freedom to not be bound by the whims of men, freedom to not be bound by our culture, but instead to simply obey God according to his word. So again, the big takeaway from the second commandment is that true worship must be directed to God alone in the way that God has directed alone. And the challenge for us as a church and for all of you is that let's be people and let's be a church that commits ourselves to worship our God according to the way that he has commanded. Let us be people that read the Bible faithfully and preach and hear the Bible and sing it and pray it and administer the sacraments and partake of the sacraments together and honor God as we worship. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you've given us direction on how to worship you, that we're not left in the dark, um, just trying to feel our way around, just trying to um, do the things that seem good to us, but that instead we can commit to those very simple, seemingly ordinary things that you've told us to do and trust that you work in us powerfully um, through your word when it is preached and read, when we sing songs full of biblical content and and wisdom, and when we pray, and when we 
uh, administer and partake of sacraments. We pray that you'd help us to be a church that is faithful to that, um, that you'd give us a desire to do that and to obey you in those ways, and that you would work in us um, through your word uh, as we worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.